In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I have a fantastic conversation with Renee Autumn-Ray. Renee is an urban planner who has worked in transportation planning, policy, operations, and data evaluation. She is currently the strategy and innovation leader at Conduent Transportation. She also serves on the Transportation Research Board Committees for Intelligent Transport Systems and Innovative Public Transport Services and Technologies. She's also on the board of directors for Georgia Bikes, so she is another great guest for Mobility March. Renee and I discuss the early career experiences that sparked her interest in smart community concepts and the power of bringing data, including qualitative data, into decision-making. Renee tells us about some of the projects she's been working on, including curating panels for conferences with a focus on mobility and accessibility. We talk about why we should be looking at ways parallel industries are solving similar problems when we're looking at problems that we're facing in our own industries. Renee also shares with us the emerging opportunities for accessibility in the micro-mobility space and the different ways people are thinking about reducing accessibility barriers to travel. We then have a great chat about how important accessible and flexible workplaces are for everyone, especially those with disabilities, which is such a timely conversation considering the way COVID-19 is forcing a lot of people into remote work. This is in March 2020. We finish our chat with Renee sharing a couple of her favourite resources for learning more about these concepts. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns and smart cities. It's where we live, work and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Renee. How are you today? Hi, Zoe. I'm good. How are you? I am fabulous. Let's jump straight in. And can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about? Sure. Uh, I am an urban planner. I got my degree in land use planning about 12 years ago. Um, I first became interested in urban planning when I lived in Philadelphia and New York City when I was in my early 20s. And the more I read about how cities and the way that people move through cities was uh, a school of thought, the more I got interested in doing that as my career. When I graduated, I went through a series of jobs and went from actual land development and land use policy into transportation, which is sort of the negative externality of uh, poor land use planning decisions, in my opinion. And so over the course of a number of years, I got to work with the Centers for Disease Control, the Federal Highway Administration in the U.S., and then I started working in actual operations of transportation services for older adults and people with disabilities, and I became really interested in the future of transportation and how we should be doing a better job of investing in that future in a way that serves everybody and not just people that can afford and have the ability to drive a car. And so I came to Conduent about two years ago, and that's been my first job working full-time in technology and not just having it be part of my job. And I'm now really excited. I lead strategy and innovation across Conduent Transportation, and I have some 
additional uh, professional organizations that I sit on, and I'm basically just having a really wonderful time learning and being in this this technology and accessibility space. That's awesome. I really love that. And it sounds like your background, you know, it's all coming together to really serve this kind of mobility space. And I also love how you said that when we talk about mobility, it has to be about people, not just people driving cars, but actually the people who don't have access to the network now. We really need to focus on on that. And I think that doesn't get enough airtime because, you know, there's lots of talk about technology and people get really, or we all get excited about technology. But if we're not using it for the people with the most at stake, then I, I don't think we can call it smart. Yeah, I agree. One thing that I was really passionate about when I was studying urban planning and the the school that I went to is actually the oldest school that houses urban planning in the social sciences. So instead of thinking about a city, uh, you know, an engineering problem or an architecture problem, they thought about the city as how do people move through space and live in a community. And so the sort of fundamental foundation of planning is looking after the health, safety, and welfare of everyone that lives in the community. And so that philosophical underpinning is something I've really carried with me, even as I've gone out of traditional planning and into other fields. Mm, that's awesome. And you've already touched on this quite extensively on, you know, we're talking about your background, but it, was there anything in particular that really sparked your interest in what I'm going to call the smart community space? I had a really great opportunity earlier in my career, as I mentioned, to work with CDC. So that's the the federally funded Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the U.S. And I basically learned evaluation on the job. So, you know, with a more of a public policy background, I had not spent a ton of time collecting or analyzing data, but I was able to work alongside epidemiologists and statisticians and data scientists and work with them to think more broadly around what is a problem that we're trying to solve and how do we use data to better understand and try to fix it. And being able to have that experience was something that I got really excited about in a way that I didn't expect. And I became sort of a a data evangelist in some of the other industries that I went in after that where data collection and analysis was not very far along. Yeah, that's so interesting, and it's one of the reasons why I started a master's actually this week, uh, as we are recording last week as we're recording of data science, because I found the same thing. I got I get really excited when we're able to bring data into decision making that before may have been based on assumptions, or maybe we just don't mm-hmm. know how much you know what data we're using in the decision making process as well. So yeah, I also get really excited about data. So I, I feel you on that. Definitely. One thing that people do in public health that I wish we did more of in technology and transportation is think about data as qualitative data, so expert opinions and what they might call key informant interviews and not just, you know, actual numbers on a page. And so I like to try to remember that, you know, consulting with experts and having conversations also counts as data and is also something that can inform our work. Mm. I totally agree. I think the stories and the numbers are so important. And even like definitely from an expert perspective, that's something that we definitely need to feed more into when we are talking about data. But then I think from like a community perspective as well, when we are talking, you know, smart community projects or initiatives or anything like that, 
that the data that the community can give us on their needs and thoughts and you know pain points is is really important to feed into the data set as well and then actually comparing sometimes um, depending on what it is comparing the numbers and the stories is really important as well because we can look at well you know what actually happens in the numbers but what do people think is happening or what do they perceive of what what is actually going on so yeah I find it really fascinating definitely I remember one of my friends in public health would say every community has assets so we may look at a community as you know most people living in poverty underinvested you know very poor infrastructure but there are assets in that community we just aren't focusing on them and identifying them but the people that live there can tell us what they are if we ask them Mm-hmm. So what is a smart community to you? I would say that a, a smart city or a smart community is a place that uses data and technology where it's helpful and not where it might not be particularly helpful. So we take limited resources and time and put them where they have the most opportunity to solve a problem. Mm, yeah, I like that. I think where it's helpful is really important. I mean, we talk a lot about technology being that enabler, which I think, you know, mm-hmm. is right. But I feel like sometimes we still bring it to the front. We talk about it as an enabler, but actually is it a useful enabler? And, you know, a lot of the times it is. And, but other times it might be something completely, you know, analog um, that we need to first start with or whatever. Or that it doesn't necessarily have to be new technology. It can really be stuff that's already readily available. It's just being utilised in a different way or something like that. So yeah, I, I agree. I think it's really important. I have an example. Do you want me to give it or do you feel like? Yeah, let's go. Sure. So I was thinking of examples of, you know, what what's a, a smart city and what might not be. And there was an image that came across my LinkedIn a number of times a couple of months ago. And it was some kind of technology solution that would low colored smoke if a person tried to jaywalk across a crosswalk. And I thought this really seems like a very expensive problem. And, you know, in fact, what I think might be more useful is many cities still don't have a good asset map of where are the sidewalks? Are they in good condition? Where are pedestrians traveling? And, you know, so I think that spending money on actually mapping what the existing assets are and then prioritizing financial resources to fixing existing infrastructure is a much better use of technology and data than some things that kind of look really flashy and great in a video but may not actually really help solve a problem. Mm, That's so true. And, you know, mapping out the assets, that's not super sexy, right? But so valuable. Um, Not at all. yeah, yeah. And, and and the way that we can do it these days, you know, with the technology, I mean, it's still rapidly increasing, you know, getting better and better every day, maybe every year at least. I think we haven't realised the full potential of that at all, you know, in cities but also in regional areas as well because we haven't really, you know, as much as when we get the map, then we have to maintain it and all those things. But I feel like if mm-hmm. we do it properly, we can measure and monitor, we can continue to update it and the use cases that, can be enabled by having that information um, and displaying that information uh, is is really, really important. But yeah, I I agree. It's not super sexy, but that's the stuff I'm really fascinating when councils, like local governments and cities and councils 
they're all the same thing, but actually invest in doing that because then the use case that can build on that are much richer. And, you know, then we can look at, well, the, with the community, maybe there is, you know, some technology that can plug in at the end that's exciting and ribbon-cutting material, but actually having that foundation is so important. Absolutely. Okay, um, let's move on to some of the projects and things that you're currently working on. Okay, I have a, a few different hats that I wear uh, with my role leading strategy and innovation. One of my personal favorite ones is I have the opportunity to spend time going to conferences, uh, bringing together colleagues, speaking on panels. So one of the things that I just wrapped up last night actually were a couple of panels for a transportation research board conference. I don't know if you're familiar with TRB, but um, I was first introduced to it yeah. when yeah, I, I came in. Yeah, okay. So I first got introduced to it when I came to work in public health. And it's one of the only spaces that I've been to where academics and practitioners get together and actually, you know, think through research problems and doing, you know, conducting scientific research and, and translating results into best practices and, you know, implementing them in, in cities. So there's going to be a conference on sustainability and emerging transportation technologies later this summer. So I kind of went through my, there, no one's come up with a good name for what a Rolodex is when it's actually just my Outlook contact. But uh, I kind of went through my my colleagues and, and came up with a couple of panels that I'm really excited about. So I talked a little bit about why I came to work in technology, but what I'm really interested in seeing is as we think about shaping the future of mobility, there's a lot of excitement around this idea of mobility as a service. And, you know, I have a, a decent bit of skepticism over whether or not we're going to really get there, you know, particularly in the United States where we have a very different uh, land development pattern than uh, Europe and some of the other countries that are working on it. But figuring out the payment piece is going to be one of the most important parts of mobility as a service. That's one of the reasons I came to the company I work for because we do a lot of work in payments. But so one of the panels that I have put together is on how we actually reduce barriers to payment for people with disabilities or people who are unbanked and don't have a smartphone. It's one of the most difficult pieces, I think, because you have a great range of complexity between transit agencies or bike share operators or transit network companies like Uber and Lyft. And so I think there's a lot of interest and attention on the idea of mobility as a service, but more attention needs to be paid for how do we actually do the work of making it happen on the ground and kind of work through all the messiness of figuring out business rules and making exceptions to existing policies that may be on the books and testing things and seeing if they really work or not. So that's mm -hmm. a panel I'm really excited about. And then uh, the other one that I'm working is just more general about all the ways that travel creates barriers for people with disabilities because the travel is not accessible. And so what are different points along the route that we can create new solutions that reduce some of those barriers? Mm, no, that's awesome. And accessibility is such a key area, which, you know, I talk about, um, but I really like how 
what you're saying is basically it's it's I mean it's great to talk about it and be interested in it, but actually getting down into the messiness of it because it's not you know it's not going to be a linear path. It's a challenge, and I mean I think it's it has to be a challenge that we we tackle with this whole technology and smart thing. But yeah, getting mm-hmm. into the messiness of it is so key. So yeah, thanks so much for um the work that you're doing in the space. Oh yeah, well, and you know one of the things that I think make cities very challenging is that we want there to be easy solutions that are applicable everywhere and there are so many unique variables in cities and it's everything from topography to you know the demographics that live in a particular region to what are the existing built environment assets that it, unfortunately it's very hard to say DC did something and it worked really well so we should be able to do it in Atlanta or Denver or Birmingham Alabama um, and so mm. I think that there's a lot of job security in urban planning, but there's a lot of messiness in trying to figure out what's going to work in a particular place. Mm. And for people that don't know what TRB is, it's the Transport Research Transportation Research Board. It's in the US, like just in the US, isn't it? Um, it is headquartered in the US. It's uh, It's got a good bit of funding through the National Academy of Sciences, but it is mm. open internationally. So Actually, a, a lot of the colleagues that I know who work outside the U.S. I've met as a result of participating in TRB. Mm, so that's I, it, awesome. it definitely has a U.S. bias um, because it's headquartered there and the annual conference is in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. every year. But it does have decent participation globally, which, really, you know, of course, benefits us in the U.S. Mm. Yeah, I was people. looking at attending in January, but I couldn't fit it into my schedule because I was in the U.S., but I was in New York at the time and I tried to squeeze okay. it in because so many people were telling me, oh, oh, you have to go to this. And then when I looked it up, I was like, oh, yeah. And people kept asking me, oh, you're in the US. Are you going to TRB? And I was like, mm, no, but maybe next year. I have to tell you, I, I love being able to go to conferences, um, but it also means that I go to a number of bad conferences. But um, the two best are TRB and then uh, one that's called NACTO which is uh, like National Association for City and County Transportation Officials. But those are the two where you can be guaranteed that most of the sessions are going to be really high quality and everyone you meet is going to be pretty smart. Mm, I love that. Yeah. So if it works out for you another year, I highly recommend the big TRB. Mm, Okay, cool. I'll um, add it to the the list. Should be good. Is it only in January? It's always in January, every every year, same place, roughly the same time, like the second week. Cool. Okay. I'll make it happen. Anyway, back to you. Something about some of the projects and things you're working on. Do you have anything else that you want to add in that space? I think that's about it. But one point that I would like to make is, you know, I think everyone in every industry complains about silos, but, mm. you know, they're certainly here in transportation as well. And one of the things that I've really benefited from working at Conduent, because we do payments related to transit tolling or road usage charging, uh, curbside, and also um, photo enforcement, is that you see what the what each industry kind of views as their capabilities and, and their assets and what is the normal standard practice. And so just to give you an example, one of the things that's extremely challenging Anytime we talk about mobility as a service is 
oh, it's just going to be so hard to try to get, you know, one particular transit agency to agree to have, you know, transfers with another system that's nearby. But in the U.S., at least, if you look at tolling agencies, for 15 or 20 years, they've had intergovernmental agreements so that if I have a tolling transponder on my car and I live in the state of Georgia, I can pretty easily just drive my car in South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida. Everything is easy. I go straight through the toll booth. Uh, you know, they, you know, send me my bill in some way and I pay it. And I think a lot of times, too, there can be a little bit of parochialism in the U.S. where, you know, my company might have the transit back office for Paris and Mexico City and people think, you know, I don't really care that much what Paris and Mexico City are doing. I want to know what, you know, my neighbor 200 miles away is doing. So when you can say, we have an example in the U.S. of how, you know, multiple government agencies have solved their problem and feel confident in their revenue streams being protected, it's just tolling instead of transit. To me, that's a great opportunity. And it's one where I've had a few conversations that probably some other people have, but it's not something that is, I think, penetrated very well for people to think about, here's an existing solution that we should be able to transfer pretty easily into this space. And obviously, it still takes political will and political capital. But, you know, the technology is the easy part. And we have uh, some existing blueprints. It's uh, getting everybody to pay attention to that when they have a lot of other competing interests on their time and priorities for what they want to do to improve mm. their service. Mm. Yeah, I think moving forward, definitely the breaking down of silos, but yeah, what that actually means and looking at the blueprints, because we have been able to do it. I mean, the telecommunication industry, you know, hasn't done it. Like I can use my phone in other countries and, and that type of thing. Like we've got these standards that, that exist. And I think more and more we need to start looking at that, not just in specific industries, but actually that horizontal because when we talk about smart communities or smart cities or, you know, mobility and just integrating transit, we need to really look across those different government agencies and disciplines, which is more challenging. But, hey, we've, we've got some very smart people out there. And like you said, if the, the willingness is there, then I think we can, we can make it happen because the technology is available. It's just now the human and the, the willingness to actually focus in on that and, and do something about it. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the future now and I'm really keen to hear about the emerging trends that in your space, like what are people not talking about enough? I, let's see, there are a couple of things that come to mind. One of the things that I think about pretty regularly and, you know, people kind of complain about on, on Twitter and I'm certainly among them is that the tech industry that is driving a lot of the investment and innovation in the future of mobility, for the most part, does not represent the population as a whole. So that means it's very much likelier that we will not end up with solutions that are equitable and as well designed as they could be, because you don't know what you don't know. And I think there is a lot of lived experience that adds richness to diverse teams that is missing in the technology space. And so that I think is something, unfortunately, it's not a new trend, but I don't think it's necessarily getting a lot better, at least in the, you know, several years that I've been working in it. 
But something else that I'm more optimistic about, but that I wish people were talking more about, is uh, the opportunity presented by uh, scooters and micromobility. So I mentioned that I'm really interested in accessibility, and I've seen some really interesting prototypes for things that you might consider as a sort of mobility device or mobility aid for an older adult. And I've seen anecdotally just via Twitter or different Facebook groups, people with disabilities who may have chronic pain flares or other mobility limitations who are really helped by scooters. And so I think there is a lot of opportunity for rapid, and I've certainly seen rapid innovation and new designs coming on the market. I mean, once or twice a year, just since scooters first came out publicly a couple of years ago. And so I'm really hopeful about the opportunity for better designs that are more stable and actually can be used as accessibility or mobility devices, but don't have the stigma that unfortunately we have as a sort of ableist society so that when you see something that is designed specifically as a mobility device, oftentimes there's a stigma that develops around that just because of the general stigma that we have against Mm -hmm. people with disabilities. And so if we can have widely available devices that can be used as mobility devices but are marketed to everyone, I think that creates a huge opportunity to expand the reach of transit or just, you know, straight origin destination trips using some of these things such as, you know, e-bikes that might have three wheels or, you know, better designed e-scooters um, or, you know, some of the lighter mopeds that are coming out. So that's that's what I get really excited about and I'm hoping to see more of in the next few years. Mm, I really like that take and it's something I've been thinking about how to take this micro mobility trend and really leverage that for accessibility because there's lots of, you know, people talking about how it's decreasing accessibility for people that aren't able to access those scooters and that type of thing. But actually if we focus in on, well, what could we do to make those things accessible in a way that they're still yet designed and I guess stylish and just look like something that anybody could use uh, to reduce that stigma Mm -hmm. so then people can use them. I think, yeah, it's definitely an important step to actually leveraging micromobility for what it's actually talking about it's doing, which is opening up its accessibility for people. There's definitely a legitimate criticisms about, you know, micromobility and the ways that I think, you know, the the most popular or common example is uh, when they block sidewalks and Mm. wheelchair access. But I think there's a lot of other ways that we're starting to expand how we think of disability and expand the range to better reflect what the range of disabilities actually are. So it can be somewhat limited mobility. It can differ by the day. You know, it can be cognitive or behavioral as well as physical. And so, you know, thinking about all the different ways that we can reduce those barriers and focus not just on wheelchair accessibility, but on other accessibility tools. I think we're going to, I just feel like we're going to have a ton of innovation in this space because people are starting to think differently about what accessibility is and how we need to reduce the barriers to travel. Mm. 
And going back to your earlier point about on the other end, the people coding the technology or developing the technology, uh, having diversity and having people that have disabilities of all different ranges and all different abilities of all different ranges involved in those processes is so key. And I think that focus on getting people into uh, or getting more women into STEM, for example, I think it goes beyond that, which is actually what STEM can be used uh, not just if you're super technical, but actually can be used to help people, which is a lot of, uh, from my experience, talking to other women in the spaces that I've been working in, this drive to help people and to contribute. And I guess in the past, the narrative is, oh, well, if, if you have that drive, then you're a carer or you're you know, in the humanitarian kind of field or whatever. But actually engineering and technology now, even more than ever, you can actually be helping people on a really large scale if you're involved in that coding process or in, you know, that design process. But actually, you know, coding the future is, I guess, what I talk about a lot is we are coding the future right now. So it's more important for, or it's, it's always been important, but even more than ever for different people to be involved in that process. And you don't have to have all of the skills no, and no one person has all the skills no matter how much they want to tell you that they do. And so actually bringing those mm-hmm. together is really key. And I think that translator of that connector that does have skills but actually can connect people together so then the right things kind of happen and the design process moves forward because you have the right amount of skills or, you know, the different variables and that type of thing and the right expertise and professionals and that type of thing it is really key as well and will be more important we do move into this more integrated approach. I agree. And, you know, I think particularly in technology, um, just the devices that we have available can make work so much more accessible. So, you know, I'm in the U.S., you're in Australia, we're talking on a Zoom call. I work remotely out of my basement. I can use, uh, you know, texting, email, video or, or phone chat to communicate with my team, you know, I can work with a global team and all of the tools that my company gives me a non-disabled person to work with can enable someone with a disability to work from home if that's something that uh, is an accommodation for them, to work in an office, to be able to work a more flexible schedule. And so I think companies, some are taking advantage of that, but I think that's one of the big opportunities. I think especially in the U.S. where we have had a pretty low unemployment rate for the past year or so, thinking more creatively around how we make work accessible and how, in some ways, the jobs we have are already accessible and maybe need to be slightly changed in terms of a job description or, or how we think of the normal day. You know, we're already used to people being available after hours and on weekends and of some people sort of preserving specific hours uh, for specific tasks or for travel. And I feel like that flexibility needs to be extended to create a more accessible workplace. And, you know, the burden of bias has really created enormous numbers of unemployment in people with disabilities. And there are, I mean, that's something that I think we have a lot of opportunity to change, but we need more focus on that you know at a corporate level Mm, yeah I love that the opening up of the opportunity enabled through technology and what that would look like because if we are really focused on diversifying our workforce and yeah that's what we need to be 
honing in on and not just increasing the flexibility for the people that already work there, but our potential workforces, what level of flexibility will attract them and or what things do we have to do to really set up the systems and processes so then everybody can have that, I guess, flexibility of working and adapting to what the future of work will look like because I think, yeah, many large companies will really struggle to, and governments as well, attract the talent if they are kind of living in the the old world of looking at people face-to-face all of the time. I do think face-to-face is very important, don't get me wrong, but I think that shouldn't be the number one value. It should be people's, you know, skills and talents and uh, the things that they can bring to the table before actually looking at someone, if if someone can get to the office. Because I think, yeah, it's so integrated with mobility as well, working in places where uh, the only way to get there is to drive a car or things like that. So thinking about all those things and and really prioritising the people that do have to work in place and then actually allowing people to have that flexibility uh, otherwise. And I guess there's a whole conversation in in that about how you enable that. But, yeah, it's such an important thing to really think about what, opportunities we can open up because we are able to work flexibly. Absolutely. I wanted to say that companies should be thinking of this in its own right, but sometimes Mm -hmm. it's more palatable to frame it as something that creates a better situation for everyone. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're fortunate in the U.S. that we have one of the, if not the strongest, disability laws, the Americans with Disabilities Act. So we have pretty good regulatory framework compared to some of the other developed countries that we might think of as our peers, but there's still a lot of loopholes in that reform in a lot of ways that it's not being implemented and unfortunately has been kind of piecemeal implementation. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell us um, quickly about some of your favorite resources uh, that you use in the space, podcasts, um, books, or even just you know people you follow on LinkedIn or anything like that. So because I'm newer to technology, most of the podcasts that I follow are more related to technology than they are to straight mobility. So the one that I recently discovered that I love is called Reset. And it is basically how technology is related to everything. They have had some interesting, they did have an interesting one recently on data privacy and the U.S. Immigration Agency which is related to actually one of the biggest controversies we've had in the U.S., which is around mobility data specification or cities collecting data on individual trips and how easily that can pinpoint individuals. So I highly recommend that podcast. What I've actually been doing the past couple of years is getting more engaged on Twitter, and Twitter has become my favorite learning tool. I'm finding a lot of really smart, engaged and thoughtful people that I'm learning from. And I actually appreciate that as one of my most relevant sources, somewhat for news, but really for building my capacity in understanding the priorities and the needs of people of color, uh, people with disabilities, women, people that often aren't given the, the top spot in sort of mainstream news articles about transportation and mobility and so learning from people on Twitter has been really valuable for me. Mm, excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. I've also started being a bit more engaged in Twitter as well. My main platform is LinkedIn at the moment, but I find Twitter interesting. Also depressing at times, 
because of the polarization uh, in some feeds. But yes, following people that kind of add that really rich you know, understanding and, and knowledge in that space has really been a great experience. Well, it's been so great to chat with you, Renee. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Oh, yeah. No, I'm obsessed with podcasts, so it's literally like my dream to be invited to be interviewed on one. So I've been super excited since you asked me. Oh, thank you. I love podcasts as well. So that last question is a little bit self-serving because I want to know what people are listening to um, and so I can go and follow them as well. So as much as it is for the audience, um, I also love hearing about other podcasts that people love because I... Uh, spend a lot of time just uh, you know, commuting or whatever and um, love listening to you know, getting more information into my head about this space. So thanks for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just have one last question, which is how can people connect with mm-hmm. you? Sure. Uh, people can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, and both my Twitter handle and my LinkedIn page are my full name, Renee Autumn Ray. Excellent. We'll put the link in the show notes so people can click away and find you. Thank you again for coming onto the podcast and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Renee. Talk soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Are you looking for an engaging speaker, MC, or facilitator for your next big event? Then we've got you covered. Zoe is a go-to speaker, MC, and conversation facilitator with a difference. She's a master at simplifying the complex and making connections you might never see. Book Zoe for your next event. Email hello at mysmart.community or head over to her speaker page, www.mysmart.community forward slash speaking. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at smartcomhq. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.